the Sunday Sermons Podcast. Well, once again, good morning and welcome. We always say that so many times because we mean it. Um, I'm so excited to be sharing about Jesus. If you were uh, on time this morning, you heard the first song, sang along with us, you know this is already all about Jesus. But even the way we say his name is not the way he would have said it. I don't know if you knew that or not. But when Jesus was a boy, he would have spoken Hebrew and Aramaic. And in that, those two languages, they would have pronounced the name Jesus, Yeshua, or something close to that. I'm not sure I can even get it right. His last name would have probably been Bar Yosef, which is the son of Joseph. Later in Greek, they called him Yesu or Yesus Christos. Christos is the title of Messiah, Savior, Deliverer, the one who can save us, the hero, the rescuer. And we, we take, in English, we take Jesus Christos and turn that into Jesus Christ. And it's a beautiful name in any language. It's because of who it represents. And this morning, everything we're going to do is all about Jesus himself. And there's no way to even scratch the surface in half an hour that you just can't. You can't. There's so much, too much greatness about Jesus. Too much complicated, wonderful, beautiful things. But there's four things that I believe that we've got to really grasp if we're going to follow him. And in this mission statement of our church that we're walking through in this season, this is the seventh and next to the last of this series called Definition. Uh, As we try to figure out what it means to be exactly a, a follower of Jesus... These are four things we've got to keep in mind as we follow him. One is, he is the King of kings and Lord of lords. The second, he is the Messiah, the Savior. And then there are two animal images from Scripture that's really important that we really understand what they mean. One is that he is a lion, and the other is that he is a lamb. And one more time, if you haven't already got this memorized, I hope you do. Would you say out loud with me, this is our mission statement, helping people become fully devoted and equipped followers of Jesus Christ. Now let's say this first statement together. Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Say it boldly and proudly. Here we go. Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Now it's important that we understand this. When we say Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords, we're saying a lot more than even what I'm about to describe to you. But throughout the scripture, that is a title that simply means the greatest power in the world. Jesus is not the only person who's called the King of kings in the Bible. In fact, some pretty bad guys are. Here's an example. In Ezekiel 26, God himself tells the Israelites that if they don't repent, he's going to send Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, king of kings against them. It's a pretty big threat. He's saying, I'm going to send the one that I have put, I've given him the most power in all the world. All the other kings report to this guy. That's who I'm sending against you. You better watch out. Later, Daniel, when that happens and he and his friends are captured and taken to a 70-year exile in Babylon, Daniel addresses him this way in Daniel chapter 2. He says, your majesty, you are the king of kings. He's not worshiping him. This is not blasphemy. He's not putting him above God. He's not giving him a title that's above Jesus. This is just, that's what this title means. And he explains it here. He says, you are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands he has placed all mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds in the sky. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them all. And you are that head of gold. He's interpreting a dream here where there's several kingdoms and kings that are represented. And he's saying Nebuchadnezzar is that first one. 
Sure enough, that prophecy came through. And a couple generations later, a couple kingdoms later, uh, the king of the same place, now it's not called Babylon, it's called Persia, but it's still the greatest power in the world at that moment in history. His name was Artaxerxes. And in Ezra chapter 7, he writes a letter to Ezra to empower him to start rebuilding the wall in Jerusalem and taking people back there again. And he writes a letter to Ezra the priest, teacher of the law of the God of heaven from Artaxerxes, king of kings. He's not struck down for blasphemy. He's not claiming to be God here. He's just saying, I'm the most powerful person in the world. And that was true at that moment. Now, when we again, when we say Jesus is king of kings, we're speaking of much more than that. But that's the core of that meaning. And I think it's important that we understand that's what that means. He's the greatest authority above any other authority there can be. Lord of Lords is a similar one, but it has even more meaning. Lord of Lords is only ever assigned to either Jesus or God the Father himself throughout Scripture. That's the only two people that's ever given. And it's above every power, not just earthly powers, but the ones in heaven and the ones in hell, above every power ever. And it also has a connotation of we, we actually know this guy. Now, what, what, we, what we think about when we hear in English the words kings and lords, we kind of go back to like feudal England, right? We think about the kings and then the lords report to the kings. But there's something about that, even though that was thousands of years after the scriptures were completed. There's something about that idea that kind of works, and that's this. The kings were kind of distant. The lords, the people that lived on their territory, they knew them. They knew their character. And, and that's not exactly what it's saying here, but you see that whenever we see the title Lord of Lords, usually in the scripture, there's something, they're describing something about God who holds this position. For example, Deuteronomy 10, 17. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. Psalm 136.3 says, Give thanks to the Lord of lords. His love endures forever. And even in the New Testament where Paul makes it very clear that Jesus Christ is the King of kings and Lord of lords in so many different ways, he still calls even God with this title. In one of the letters to Timothy, he calls God the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light whom no one has seen or can see. So when we say that God is King of kings and Lord of lords, or that Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords, we're saying that the greatest power, the greatest authority that there is in heaven and on earth and under the earth or anywhere in the universe ever, ever. It's not just a really cool sounding phrase. It's, it's a statement of a fact. This is the person. And anybody else who has any authority or power at all, they only get that because of God himself. This is one of the reasons why people were so mad when Jesus said that he was one with God, that he was the only begotten son of God, when he said, I am. You can imagine that even his followers were a little bit shocked when he just made this really clear and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. But when you make a statement like that, and then you say, therefore, do you think we should probably pay attention to what that person says? That's why almost every single Sunday we say what he said there. Therefore, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all the things that I have commanded you. 
I will be with you always to the end of the age. That's Jesus. That's who we serve. There's only one spot in the whole Bible, actually, though, that these concepts thread throughout it. Old Testament, New Testament, the ideas that I just described to you, they thread all the way through. There's only one spot in the whole Bible that expressly refers to Jesus and uses both of those phrases at the same time. And it's in Revelation. What an amazing picture of heaven. This is in Revelation 19. And this is actually, we're seeing Jesus coming back. At this moment. And what you'll see again, like so many other places in the Bible, there's these ideas of this is a powerful ruler that we can't even imagine how much power he has. And also, though, we kind of know him, we know his character. You see all of this swirling around. Revelation 19, verses 11 to 16. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is faithful and true. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. There's a thousand ways you can tell this is Jesus, okay? Just listen to every single part of this. The armies of heaven are following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. All throughout the Bible, God also calls himself the Lord of heaven's armies. So again, you see the, the oneness, the, the power, the, the, the unity with God. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. That line has also been translated, he is trampling out the victory where the grapes of wrath are vintage. On his robe and on his thigh, here it is, on his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And let me tell you something, brothers and sisters, this guy is coming back. And that's what it's going to look like. And we better be prepared. And we better have some people that we have led to him ready to follow him into heaven with us. Because he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Same thing we have to know about Jesus is that he is the Messiah, the Savior. Let's say that out loud. Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior. And again, Messiah, Savior, Christ, Rescuer, Hero, they almost all mean the same thing. It means the only one that can save us, the only one who can be sent from God to deliver us somehow. All the way back in Genesis 3, when the first sin entered the world and everything got broken and messed up, God promised that someday there would be somebody who was born, born of a woman like every other human being ever, but there was something more to this particular person. And they would be able to do something about sin and death that nobody else could ever do. This was somebody specifically that he would send, someone unique and special. And then that idea got developed all the way through the Old Testament. They were living in anticipation of this. In Hebrew, they called him the Messiah. Again, in Greek, it's Christos. We call him Savior. It's, 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 it's that concept all the way through. And this, of course, is Jesus. Jesus did some pretty crazy stuff that showed exactly what he meant by that he was here to fulfill everything in the Old Testament. Here's an example. I, I, let me start out reading this. I, it was so hard to pick just one story, but I, I think this illustrates it. Matthew 8, verses 1 to 2. When Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. 
A man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Now, in the Old Testament uh, times, if you have leprosy or a whole bunch of other different kinds of diseases or problems, you were ceremonially unclean. You could not approach the temple. Depending on what it was, you couldn't even approach your friends or family. It was kind of like being on COVID quarantine a little bit. And nobody was allowed to touch these people. No one was allowed to go near them at all. Are you with me? And if anybody did, they would become unclean. The power of that darkness, that death, that sickness, that, that whatever it is that was messed up about them, that was making them ceremonially unclean at that moment, that was contagious. And that would, if you touched them, you became unclean, and then you had to go through all these ceremonies to become clean again. Watch what Jesus does. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately he was cleansed of his leprosy. And then Jesus said to him, see that you don't tell anyone, but go show yourselves to the priest and offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Notice that he's still at this moment, he's still asking him to follow the rules. He wants him to be fully reinstated into his life. He wants him to get doctor's approval and off of COVID quarantine. Are you with me? But also notice this. Jesus did not go to the priest. And here's why. Jesus is saying with his actions, with his power, with this miracle, he is saying, listen, no, no, no. The reason those rituals are important is because they point to me. I make people clean. There's nothing I can touch that's going to make me unclean. I touch leprosy and it gets well. I touch death and it turns to life again. I touch uncleanness and it becomes clean. That's who I am. I am the Messiah. I am the Savior. I am that person that God said he would send so long ago. And that is the same reason that the things that we do now, the, the prayer and the communion and the, the worship and the walking through his word and all the, the giving and all the things that we are dedicated and devoted to today. That is why baptism, that's why all the things that matter matter is because they all point to Jesus. There's nothing that special about walking down an aisle and taking some snacks. There's nothing that special about listening to one guy talk for a while. There's nothing that special about it if you just break it down. If it doesn't point to Jesus, it's nothing. If it points to Jesus, dunking somebody in water can unite somebody with Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection and give them a whole new life. Their sins are forgiven and they receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. There's nothing magic about water. There's nothing about magic of, uh, about dunking them in water at church or at camp or whatever other places are special to us. What's special is Jesus Christ commanded us to do that. Does that make sense? Amen. That's it. He is the Messiah. He is the Savior. He's the only one. Then we've got this idea of him being a lion. This is such a big deal to a lot. A lot of people love the idea of Jesus being a lion and, and it's actually not, there's only one verse in the whole Bible that calls him the lion. We'll look at that in just a second. But there are lions in the Bible. I, here's my personal belief. I think the reason we like Jesus being a lion so much is because of Aslan in Narnia. Are anybody with me on that one? 
C.S. Lewis wrote this story. He intentionally created this character who's an amazing lion, an amazing character that is deliberately a portrait of Jesus. It's a powerful portrait of his, the fear and the power and the kindness and the grace and the everything else about Jesus. I love the character Aslan. And a lot of people have actually fallen in love with Jesus because of Aslan. That's my personal opinion of why we like the idea of him being the lion so much. But I, I, I do want to tell you that in the scriptures, lions are always dangerous and scary and usually strategic about it. Throughout the scriptures, there's actually quite a few lions. There are lions who kill people and lions who get killed by people. There are lions that are used as, or as symbols representing wickedness, the devil himself. Israel, and especially the tribe of Judah, is, is symbolized by a lion. Even to this day, they sometimes still have that banner some different places. They still use that symbol quite a bit. But what they're saying is we are fierce. We are strong. We have a heart like a lion. We are brave. You better not mess with us. We are dangerous, and we have plans about it. Are you with me? And even in the scripture, when it talks about God being like a lion... It's saying that, for example, in Job chapter 10, verse 16, he's in the midst of his suffering and he says to God, if I hold my head high, you stalk me like a lion and again display your awesome power against me. In context here, it's almost, he feels like God is playing with his food. You know what I'm saying? Ever watch a cat mess with a rat a little too much that it caught? Job's feeling that God is doing that to him. This is not a pretty image of God. This is not a comforting thing. He's being honest about how he feels at this moment. And he's expressing his feelings about God. And he's saying, I'm scared to death. You're hurting me. That's the lion image. Hosea 5 verses 14 to 15. This is God speaking. And this is the lion of Judah idea that, that's referred to in the New Testament. For I will be a lion to Ephraim, like a great lion to Judah. I will tear them to pieces and go away. I will carry them off with no one to rescue them. And then I will return to my lair until they have borne their guilt and seek my face. In their ministry, they, in their misery, ministry. Wow, that was good. In their misery, they will earnestly seek me. So this idea of a lion, Jesus being a lion, this is... This is important for us to get because even when it's talking about him being a, a lion, it's talking about two things. One, that he's from the tribe of Judah, which is one of the, one of the prophecies about who the Messiah would be. He'd come from the, pride of Judah, the tribe of Judah. But the other thing is there's some danger there. There's some fierceness there. Jesus is so kind and so good, but he's also very obvious about there's only one of me. There's only one King of Kings and Lord of Lords now. There's only one Savior. There's only one Messiah, one Christ, and it's me. And there's, that's it. I am the way, the truth, the life. That's it. That's what it means that Jesus is the lion. Another beautiful image from Revelation. This is the one place where it says that Jesus is the Lion of Judah. Then I saw the right hand of him who sat on the throne, a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then 
one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll in its seven seals. In other words, he's saying, guess what? The Messiah showed up. He's here. But watch what happens next. You never actually see the lion. You hear about it, but the lion instantly changes into the much bigger, much more important image of Jesus that we're going to wrap up with today, and that is Jesus is the lamb. Would you say that out loud with me? Jesus is the lamb. First time anybody was introduced to Jesus, John the Baptist said, you say it with me, I think you probably know this, behold the lamb of God. Absolutely. There's no secret that this is who this is. And so Revelation 5, 5 says, here comes the lion. Revelation 6 begins this way. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. That's God, by the way, in case you're missing the symbolism. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp. They were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. Now, as I come to this next part, whenever there's some things where a bunch of people are saying things or praying things or singing them, I want you to read them with me out loud. Would you do that? And, th- and, and, and say it to Jesus. Here we go. And they sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You made them to be a kingdom and priest to serve our God and they will reign on earth. We're going to keep going, but do you catch a couple things here? The absolute uniqueness and sovereignty of Jesus. But the overwhelming thing that he always says all the time is includes his followers with him. He's always bringing us with him. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders with me in a loud voice they were saying worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever The four living creatures said, Amen. The elders fell down and worshipped. And in the rest of Revelation and all throughout the New Testament, this lamb, this is the ultimate symbol of Jesus because it encapsulates all of those things. When you say that Jesus is the lamb, there's the danger of the lion. I know it doesn't seem to make sense, but it's in there. And there's all the rest of it. For example, Revelation 17, 14. One more from Revelation. They will wage war against the Lamb, but the Lamb will triumph over them because He is the Lord of lords and King of kings. And with Him will be His called, chosen, and faithful followers. That's why it's so important for us to follow Jesus Christ. For us to help people become fully devoted and equipped 
followers of Jesus Christ. Because this is the destiny of the followers of Jesus Christ. And the followers of anybody but Jesus Christ is not a good destiny. You still tracking? And not only that, here's the other way that Jesus always includes his followers is he wants us to model him. We, We represent him. We are his ambassadors. We are the ones that represent him today. Philippians 2, one of my favorite passages ever. ever. Your your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in his very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing and took on the form of a servant and became obedient even unto death, even death on a cross. And therefore God has exalted him and given him a name that is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's where it's going to all end up someday because that's who he is and that's how history is going to wrap up. Some of us are going to, that's going to be the best moment ever because we are his followers. Some of us it's going to be the worst day ever because we're not. That's why this is our mission statement as a church. C.S. Lewis wrote, I am trying here to prevent, you'll just see a few of these words in the middle, but I'm going to read the whole, uh, most of this passage. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. Either this man was and is the Son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Once again, Jesus Christ himself said, I am the way and the truth and the life. The way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And we, like his earlier followers, we still stand on this and we still proclaim to the world, salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. It's all about Jesus Christ. He's the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Messiah, the Savior, the Lion, the Lamb, the one and only. And this morning I invite you to pray this prayer. Lord, I will follow that guy. I will follow Jesus. I will worship him and serve him as the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the ultimate authority in my life. I will invite him to rescue me and keep rescuing me. I will remember that just like Aslan in the Chronicles of Narnia, he's not a tame lion, but he is good. I will worship and I will follow the example of the Lamb of God. 
If you need to make, do, get something taken care of with the Lamb of God this morning, my dad is actually going to come stand where I normally do. I'm going to lead the songs. But would you all, would you stand? Would we all worship and come to Him together and one more time surrender to Jesus Christ?